I knew I would trip over it. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to uh, Isaiah 53 and Matthew 28. It's kind of where I'll open up and where I'll close. In between, I might be in another series of passages. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. As we read in the Passion narratives of the Gospel, we believe by faith that the tomb is empty, that the stone has been rolled back, that the soldiers that were there to guard it became as dead men, that the seal was broken, and that our Mashiach our anointed one, our Savior Jesus, lives, reigns, and is alive. We proclaim a Redeemer liveth. Father, guide our time this morning. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Final words. Last words. Words fraught with meaning. Let's suppose for a moment that you and I were at the end of our life and we knew that we had the opportunity to share a few thoughts with those that we love. Those final thoughts, those final words. What exactly would you and I say? I think of Voltaire the French philosopher and atheist. He believed that the age of enlightenment would be the end of anyone believing in an empty tomb. But if you know anything about Voltaire at the end of his life, he is reputed to have said these words, I am a fool. The very hell I denied is now waiting for me. Final words, last words, words fraught with meaning. I think of William Carey, a missionary from Britain for 41 years to India. At the end of William's life, he made this statement. When I am gone, talk of William less and of William's Savior more. Wise words. I think of Susanna Wesley. She had a brood of children, several of whom, John and Charles, founded Methodism and gave many of the great hymns of the faith. At the end of Susanna's life, those brood of children were around her, and she said, I'm about to go the day way of all the earth. Let us sing a song or hymn of praise. Great anticipation, great joy. She knew that her Redeemer liveth, and she wanted to sing praise. I think of Adoniram Judson, that indefatigable American missionary. He translated the Bible into Burmese. At the end of his life, he said, I have lived a good life. I have liked living here. I like my job. 
but I'm looking forward to going home. I'm like a little boy who came out of the classroom and I'm heading for the playground. That's the faith of a man who knows that his Redeemer liveth. Last words, final words, words fraught with meaning. Jesus on the cross uttered seven words, seven phrases, seven sentences that were fraught with meaning. Today we won't look at all of them. We'll really look at only one. Why was Jesus ever on the cross? Well, of course, it's because of you and me. But humanly speaking, why was he on the cross? Because while he was on earth, he made it clear that he was the Mashiach. He was the anointed one. He was the holy one. He is the Messiah. And by proclaiming that, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they wanted Jesus put to death. They wanted an end to Jesus. But as you know, at the time, Palestine was occupied. It was occupied by Rome, and Jews were not allowed to put fellow Jews to death. Only Rome could do that. They accused Jesus of blasphemy, but they could not put him to death. So to a weak-kneed governor, a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate, that's where they went. And a mock trial was given. A kangaroo court was held. Jesus, clearly an innocent man, was condemned to death on a cross. Now we have to understand that Jews knew a lot about crucifixion. Romans even more. From the time of Jesus to the time when General Titus became Emperor Titus, that 40-year period, and Titus is the one that destroyed the second temple of the Jews, during that 40-year period, we have records of 30,000 Jews crucified on crosses. 30,000. We know a lot about Roman execution. Jesus knew as well. Have you ever asked the question, whatever became of Jesus' earthly father? Well, we don't know for sure, but I have a pretty good guess. An educated guess. When Jesus was 11, perhaps 12, he lived in Nazareth. And Nazareth was reputed to be a stronghold of zealots. Zealots were Jews who hated Rome, who had embraced guerrilla warfare. They would strike at Roman soldiers and then disappear out into the countryside. And so Rome sent soldiers to Nazareth, and they crucified every man, every man in Nazareth probably including Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. Jesus knew what crucifixion was all like. He knew that prior to the cross was the flagellum. The flagellum was the Roman whip. It was made of leather embedded with glass, pottery shard metal, in the hands of a strong soldier, it was capable of ripping out hunks of flesh 
with every stroke. Because of the violence of the flagellum, Jewish law limited a stroke to 39. But Jesus wasn't beaten by Jews. He was beaten by Romans. And as I read the Gospels, he wasn't beaten once but twice. And Romans were limited by nothing but their whim and their strength. We have no idea how many times that whip hit Jesus in the back. But after the beating, of which he would have lost a great deal of blood, many Jews had perished after one beating prior to crucifixion. Jesus endured two and then was crucified. After the beating, he would carry the patabolum through the streets. Now, due to ancient and modern art and Hollywood, we kind of think that he dragged a cross through the streets. He did not. The upright beam would have been permanently set in the place of the skull, the rock. He would have only carried the cross beam, the patabolum. That would be enough. It would be six feet, about 100 pounds, very coarse. He would carry it along the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross. When he got to Golgotha, the beam would be put down and he would be forced down on it. The coarse wood against his open back. Husky Roman soldiers would pin him down. One would have a mallet holding five to seven inch spikes and driving it into the ball of the wrists. And then when both wrists were nailed, they would drag him backward by his wrist, by the patabolum, and they would fasten it to the upright beam that was already in the ground. And then they would nail his ankles. That's crucifixion. That's what Isaiah wrote about 700 years earlier. You say, well, maybe he didn't write that early. He did. How do we know it? Because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate the crucifixion of Christ by several hundred years, that predate the Gospels by 250 to 300 years. This was a prophecy that we have scrolls several hundred years earlier than the crucifixion. And listen to what Isaiah wrote. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. What a vivid picture. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled back. I know that our Redeemer liveth. But before the resurrection came the crucifixion. And the crucifixion in every way was vile. Let me read what Mark talked about as part of the crucifixion. It's one of those final words, those last words, those words fraught with meaning 
This is what Mark recorded. Matthew has it as well. Mark 15, 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour, that would be noon. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three, from 12 to three, at the zenith, the height of the sun in the Middle East, it was dark. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That darkness was actually a fulfillment of the book of Amos. Again, we have Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts of Amos that are several hundred years prior to the event that took place. Listen to what Amos wrote in Amos 8, 9 and 10. I, God, will make the sun go down at noon, the sixth hour, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning, M-O-U-R-N, the morning for an only sun. Darkness signifying the tomb is empty. I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know that the seal is broken. The stone has been rolled back. Jesus is alive, but before that, he was crucified, and he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, Lamasabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Have you ever thought of those words? They're a bit upsetting. There's all sorts of things in that little phrase that I don't expect. For instance, Jesus is asking a question. It's an interrogative. When Jesus asks questions, he already knows the answer. When he asks questions, he's asking to test us. But this time he's asking because he wonders what's going on at that moment. He didn't expect this much separation. My God! My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus doesn't ask questions. He makes statements. He doesn't ask why Peter will deny him. He knows. He predicts it. He doesn't ask how the gospel will go forth. He tells us how it will go forth. He doesn't ask questions. And while I'm on this rant... I've got a little problem with the word forsaken. Why hast thou forsaken me? It's not what I would expect. I look up in my Merriam-Webster dictionary, and forsaken means abandoned, alone, forsaken. Is that what we expect to happen with the Father to the Son? That he abandons, he forsakens, he leaves them alone? Is that what we should expect It's not what I expect. Maybe Paul will bail me out. I remember in Galatians 3, 13, he talks about this event. And he says that Jesus became a curse for us as he hung on the tree. You know what that word curse is? It's katara. Your breath should be taken away by what I'm about to say. That word katara 
is the same word used in Matthew 25, verse 41, where Jesus says, Depart from me, you who are cursed. I never knew you. The word used of what Jesus did is the same word used of the unredeemed who are sent into alienation forever. You ever wonder if God loves you? If you matter to God? If you are the object of God's rapt attention? Do you, I, ever wonder how much God loves us? The Holy One, the Mashiach, the Anointed One, became a curse for us. He became a curse because he saw you and you and you and you and he saw me and he saw us in the midst of our sin. It's hard to imagine the perfect fellowship between father and son that had always existed, that will always exist, was suddenly blown apart, was suddenly broken, was devastated because of us. Because Jesus took on our sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, the Father who made him who knew no sin, Jesus the Son. To be sin, Jesus took our sin on himself on the cross, that through him, through faith in Jesus, we would become the righteousness of God. He would trade our sin that he took on the cross and grant his righteousness to us so that when God looked down on sinners, he would see the righteousness of Christ and he would give us redemption. He would give us cleansing. He would give us a future and a hope. That's what Jesus did for us. But while I'm still ranting, I'm not done. My God, my God. Is that what we expect Jesus to say? Do you remember the first statement on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Do you remember the last? Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. It's always intimate. It's always special. It's the, the perfect bond which is shattered. My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? If you ever doubt the love of God and what he did for you, for me, think about that statement, that terminal word, that final word, that word that matters. He did all of that for you and he did it for me. The tomb is empty. The soldiers have become like dead men. The stone has been rolled back. The seal has been broken. I know that my Redeemer liveth. But before that, he went to the cross. The picture is in the Old Testament. I could have gone to Genesis. Maybe next year I will. Probably not. I won't remember. But this year I'm going to Leviticus. The 16th chapter, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest in front of all of Israel will take two goats, unblemished goats. 
The first one he will slaughter and he will collect the blood. And he will go through the court of Gentiles and he'll go through the court of women and he'll go through the court of men and he'll pull back the veil where he can go only once a year for only a few moments into the Holy of Holies and there will be the Ark of the Covenant four and a half by two and a half by two and a half feet made of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold. And the top is called the mercy seat. And inside is the law of God. The law that we break, the law that we are violators of, the law that makes it clear that all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. And he takes the blood and he smears it over the mercy seat. So when God looks down at the law that is broken, he sees the blood, the atonement, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. He sees the blood, he sees the mercy. And he forgives. And then the other goat is taken to the edge of the wilderness. And the high priest lays his hands on that goat. And ceremonially passes all the sin of humanity on that goat. And that goat is banished. He's alienated. He's isolated. He's alone. And the people... They're satisfied. The wrath of God is appeased. And the scapegoat is alone. And what did Jesus say? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He fulfilled both. He shed his blood for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. He shed his blood for us. And he was alienated. He was isolated. He was banished, he was alone, he became the scapegoat for us. That's what Jesus did. You ever doubt that he loves you? Remember what he did, how he bought redemption for you. And so after his death, he was placed in the grave, and then, and then, he was brought back to life. Matthew 28, 1 to 8. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, that you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled back. I know that my Redeemer liveth. So how must we respond? It's not enough to know the account. We need to believe it and by faith receive it as our own. We need to ask Jesus to be our scapegoat, to be our sacrifice, to pay the penalty of our sin. Believe in Christ. Ask him 
to grant eternal life, to become our Savior, to become our Lord. And if you haven't done that, today is a day of redemption. Believe by faith in Jesus and ask him to grant you eternal life. And for we who have already accepted Christ, what did the text say? They worshiped. They worshiped. Now the choir's coming back up here in a moment. Probably Pastor Jeff is going to dance up here and embarrass us all. That's just a type of worship. Worship is an attitude of life. It's singing. It's studying God's word. It's corporately coming to hear God's word. It's turning from sin and towards righteousness. That's worship. And for a believer, worship is every moment, every day. That's worship. And that's the right response. W.E. Sangster was a preacher in the United Kingdom in the 1950s. He was a powerful preacher, and when he would preach, many came to know Jesus, and many grew in their faith. But sometime in midlife, he noticed that his legs were getting heavy, and his voice was getting dim. He couldn't speak like he once spoke. He went to the doctors, and they confirmed that he had a terminal illness, and that his muscles were atrophied, and soon he would not walk, and soon he would not speak. And he said, Lord, I don't need to be a general in your army. Just let me do something. And so he began to organize prayer meetings throughout the United Kingdom. And many prayed and there was revival. But then he could no longer move. He could no longer talk, but he could write. And so he wrote publications. And then it was Easter morning. Last words, final words, words fraught with meaning. Barely able to hold the pen, his hand shaking. He wrote, it's a terrible thing to wake up on Easter and not be able to shout, he is risen. But there's something worse. Being able to shout it and not. Final words. Words fraught with meaning. One of Jesus's was, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer is because he saw you, and 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 you. And he saw me, he saw us in the midst of our sin. And he loved us so much that he went to the cross, he became a curse. He was alienated from the Father. He became both goats, forsaken and sacrificed. And he was put in the tomb. And on the third day, I know that my Redeemer liveth. He rose from the grave and offers eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, uh, for those of us who know your Son as Savior, may we be filled with worship. And for those who do not know your Son as Savior, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day that each of us 
recognize that we are sinners. Our sin separates us from you, a holy God. And that's why Jesus took our sin upon himself. And he paid the penalty of our sin, which is death, and rose again and conquered the grave, conquered death, that if by faith in your son Jesus we would be forgiven, granted eternal life, made a child of God, and if somebody here today does not know Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. We love you, we honor you, we exalt you. You are a great God. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.